Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 8. We'll look at verses 9 through 17 this morning. text is also in the bulletin for you. So we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. Sorry, my allergies really nailed me yesterday and they're lingering. So Um, this is the, um, the fifth sermon out of seven that we're going to do on the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've talked about the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. He's the one who actually, he gives us Jesus. He gives us uh, Jesus for our life, for the life of the world. He gave us the life of Jesus uh, in his conception and throughout his life, uh, being Jesus' constant companion so that he could be who he was for us. Uh, So he's, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He's the spirit of truth who uh, brings us into an encounter with Jesus. He confronts us with Jesus, even though Jesus is... uh, inaccessible to us physically or bodily because he's in heaven now. He's ascended into heaven bodily. Uh, We can't reach him, but we can have a real encounter with him uh, through the Holy Spirit. He he confronts us with Jesus, which results in our confession of sin and our throwing ourselves on Jesus for his mercy. Um, The Spirit is uh, the fire of God. He's the empowering presence of God who, when he's in our lives, he empowers us to proclaim the gospel with boldness. He, uh, he's God given to us so that we might give him to others. Um, and he's the, he's the glory of God. He's the glory of the triune God. It's like who he is. Um, he, he's the unifying love. He's the love that unites the Father and the Son, and in this love they are propelled outward uh, to love others, right? So he's, he's the unifying love of God. He's the glory of God that causes us uh, not only to uh, have a love for God, but a love for others. And so um, next week, the the last two sermons in the series that we're going to talk about uh, and finish up this series, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and then the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm sorry, there's just not enough weeks to cover everything uh, that there is in the scripture about the Holy Spirit. It's hard to, na- uh, to narrow it down, to boil it down to what we really should talk about. We could talk about the Spirit as the one who inspires this, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, that's a big deal. Um, didn't make it into the seven-part sermon series. So uh, we we're talking about the gifts and the fruit in the following two weeks. Today we're talking about he's the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption is the, the phrase that shows up in our passage in Romans 8. So J.I. Packer has a book that's uh, pretty well known. Uh, it's called Knowing God. Probably worth reading. Um, he says this, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion. So everything that the, the New Testament, which is really a way also of saying everything the Bible says about religion, you sum it up, the essence of it here. If you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father... If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And uh, unfortunately, I think our grasp of, of adoption is um, 
not always, uh, not always very good. So we need to talk about what it means that he's the spirit of adoption and what adoption means for us uh, because it's the, the essence of Christianity, really the essence of what makes the Christian life different, different from any other kind of life. The essence of what makes it different is knowing God as your father through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what sets us apart in the world is we may know through the spirit of adoption we may know God as our Father through faith in Jesus Christ, knowing ourselves to be his beloved children. It's a big deal. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, Let me, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> our Father, we're glad that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of your Son, that you've given your Holy Spirit to us so that we can embrace you through Jesus Christ by faith. We're glad that you are our Father, that you've revealed yourself not just to be a distant God or Lord, but to be our very Father, and that Jesus himself advocates strongly that we relate to you this way, and really only this way. And so we, um, we come to you as our Father, and we pray that if there are any of us here who don't know you as our Father, that they would, as we consider your word, as we meet with Jesus here, would you would you please send your spirit to us, the spirit of adoption, to persuade us and assure us of your fatherly love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we can't cover everything in this passage. Um, we do need some context from the book of Romans uh, to this point. It's, it's a well-developed argument uh, over the, the preceding seven chapters, uh, so we can't cover all of that. Really, a quick summary for us is that uh, chapters one through three of the book of Romans uh, basically saying that there's something really wrong with us. There's something very wrong with us, on a deep level. Something wrong with us. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 21, and through probably chapter 5, <clears throat> you've got that something that's very wrong with us uh, addressed, that it's, we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the new man who lives on our behalf and if we're found in him by faith, then we have a, a restored relationship with God. Uh, chapter 6, this gospel 
that he's describing, it makes us new in real ways. We're, we have real life toward God, real righteousness. Um, uh, not just imputed, not just Christ's own righteousness um, freely granted to us, that we're, that we're considered righteous, and so we have a relationship with God. It makes a real difference in our lives. Real uh, practical righteousness is possible for us now. Um, chapter 7, though, we still struggle terribly with the reality of sin in our lives, in our flesh, right, that lingers and plagues us. Um, even those who are Christians struggle with the reality of sin. But, now chapter 8, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ by faith, if he is your Savior, uh, if you look to him for his mercy, for your reconciliation with God, for your life with God, then there's no condemnation for you, even if you still sin, right? Which is all of us. Even if you still sin, you still struggle with that, you need to be assured of your forgiveness. You need the full assurance of your forgiveness. And so there's no condemnation for us. And in, in chapter 8, um, which maybe in your Bible has the header, uh, life in the spirit. Right? Uh, and for us who are in Christ, who are in the spirit, there are many ways in which we need to <clears throat> learn how to reinterpret our lives. Reinterpret the circumstances of our lives. Reinterpret the way that we think about our relationship with God. The way we think God is being with us. We need to, to relearn. We need to reinterpret in light of the good news of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit who's given to us. Right? If you don't learn how to reinterpret the world, your circumstances, your life with God in light of the gospel, then you're just going to be despairing, discouraged, depressed, always struggling with your sin and really feeling hopeless because of it. You need to learn how to reinterpret your relationship with God in light of the gospel. So uh, what he's saying is that we cannot, we cannot interpret our struggles in this life, our struggles with sin and our struggles with suffering, cannot interpret our struggles fearfully, not fearfully. We have to see God's forgiving love. We have to see his transforming love as it's the word that stands over our life no matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, because of the gospel, this is the word that stands over your life. It's his love. And you need to see your life now in light of that. It's very easy for us not to see that. It's it's natural. It's instinctive for us to, to live out of a slavish fear. I think that's what Paul is addressing here is this slavish fear that he's saying you don't, you've not received a spirit of slavery to return to fear, right? It's easy for us to live out of a slavish fear that we have to work hard to endear ourselves to, to God to earn his approval, right? If we're doing well, he'll love us. If we're not doing well, we've got to do better so that he'll love us. It's easy for us to live that way. Um, it's automatic for us to view God as having a short fuse, a quick temper, that he's impatient with us. It's, it's automatic. It's easy for us to imagine God has these capricious standards and to imagine him as if he's inclined to hate us. But that's his first instinct, is that he's predisposed against us, that he really doesn't like us, that we've got to clean ourselves up in order for him to like us. It's instinctive for us to feel that way. We're afraid. That's what this is. Paul says it's fear. 
We're afraid that if we don't please God, he will cast us aside and he'll disown us. And, And we're afraid that difficult circumstances are brought into our lives because he's displeased with us. Because, uh, because he's frustrated with us. That the suffering that we encounter or the fact that we still struggle with sin, that these, these difficult circumstances in our lives are proof of God's frustration with us. That's easy for us. Don't you feel that way? I mean, even the, the best of us, if you will, uh, feel that way. Have you read the book of Job? Uh, God in his mysterious plan, permitted Satan to afflict Job, who was a righteous man. The New Testament calls him righteous Job. Uh, and even God points out the fact that this guy, this guy is like blameless, right? And he lets Satan have his way with him, to afflict him, to cause great suffering in his life. Part of God's mysterious plan, but he permits Satan to afflict Job and and Job's friends come, and after maybe kind of an appropriate time of silent grieving together, they start offering their criticisms. Because this is the way that we think. This is the way it's easy for us to think this way. His friends suggested to him, maybe he's suffering because he did something wrong. And he defends himself. I didn't do anything wrong. This is just God's will. And they keep pushing on him chapter after chapter. No, no, you must really actually be wicked. In fact, what you're saying, it demonstrates you don't even know who God is. You you must have done something wrong, and that's why you're suffering. And he's displeased with you, and that's why you're suffering. You better fix it. You better do it right in order for God to take away this suffering from you. And they said it enough times that Job became defensive. Righteous Job. Couldn't hold out forever against his friends. He became defensive. He became self-justifying. And ultimately, he demanded that God would explain himself for apparently not living up to his end of the deal. Because that's what this is, right? It's a bargain. It's a transaction. I keep up my end. You keep up your end. That's how it works. It's, it's deeply embedded in us. that That's how it works with God. That's what it feels like not knowing God as your loving father. That's what happens when uh, you don't know him the way a Christian is supposed to know him. With, with him as your loving father. We imagine that God being a good father to us must mean that he is, he is happy enough, he's approving enough of who I am and what I've done that, um, that he will arrange easy, painless, prosperous lives for us. Right? That's what it means. If he's really pleased with my behavior, a good father would reward me and take away pain and bring me only good things. It's just instinctive for us to feel that way, but that's not what having God as your father means. First of all, that's slavish fear, Paul says. It's slavish fear uh, rather than security. It's insecurity. It's not the assurance of his love to you. Take, for example, the younger of the two sons from Jesus' parable of the two lost sons, uh, Luke 15, beautiful passage, probably familiar with it to some degree. 
<clears throat> the younger of these sons um, hated his father, wanted his father's stuff, didn't really love his father, didn't have a relationship with him. So he asked for his inheritance early, basically saying, you know, I, you could be dead or alive, doesn't matter to me, I just want your stuff. And the father said, okay. So he gave him his inheritance, and he went off to a far country, and he squandered it on himself, on pleasurable, painless, easy living. And, um, and when that ran out and um, things fell apart, well, he knew, he knew instinctively that he had betrayed and abandoned his father. He'd squandered everything that his father had given him on his own pleasures, and he had no other choice now but to go home to his father, and he was afraid of it. He was afraid. He was talking himself up. He was, he was working up his spiel. He had to plan. He had this plan to grovel before his father. When I see him, I know he's going to be angry with me. I'm afraid of that. I'm going to do whatever it takes to assuage his anger, to avert it from me. I'm just going to prostrate myself before him and make myself his slave because I'll do whatever it takes just to be back in his favor. Um, so that he won't reject me out of hatred. He had a slavish fear. And that's a transactional view of his relationship with his father. Since he hadn't really done well keeping up his end, his father had no reason to keep up his end of the, the bargain, the, the presumed unspoken bargain, right? He expected that his father had no reason to love him. His older brother also had a transactional view. That's clear from the story, the way Jesus tells it. His older brother also had a transactional view of his relationship with his father, except that the older brother felt that he had kept up his end of the bargain. The older brother had done everything right, and so didn't he deserve his father's favor and all of his gifts to enjoy all of his father's wealth. Didn't really care about his father relationally, but transactionally, it was looking good for him. He expected that his father had, uh, had every reason. And in fact, that he, he, in his mind, would have demanded that his father would keep up his end of the bargain because I've been such a good son and I've served you like a slave all these years, he says. <clears throat> so either way, both these sons uh, thought of themselves as slaves. And they, their thought of their father primarily uh, was as a master, to be pleased with work. And if I work hard enough and I do the right things, it's going to pay off and he'll give me what I want, which is a painless, easy, comfortable life. In both cases, what the father's heart was broken because of his sons, neither one of them understood him as, as their father. He wanted to convince them, I'm your father and I love you. And this breaks my heart that you would think of our relationship this way. That's what's wrong with the relationship. Um, they need to be convinced. They needed to know him as father. He loved his sons, not because of what they had done for him. He loved his sons because they were his sons. And if you have children, you, you probably know something of this. Maybe not perfectly, but something. If they mess things up, if they're being bad, or they've 
they've rebelled against you, they've done what they shouldn't have done, or they've gotten themselves in trouble because of it. They mess things up far from making you want to disown them. It, all, it moves you all the more to pity them. To pity them and gather them up and, and look for their restoration and heal them. So, so in Romans 8, <clears throat> Paul is talking about two ways of life. It's the way of the flesh. If you live according to the flesh or if you live according to the spirit, that's your two options, right? The way of the flesh is not just bad living. It's not just what we would consider licentious, evil, wicked living, right? It includes good living, good living that's done out of this slavish kind of fear, out of a transactional view of God. This, this unbelief is not knowing God as your father, as one who first and foremost and above all things loves you. And he set his love on you because he's a good father. Uh, rather, the way of the flesh is looking at God as a master to be pleased. In the flesh, and this is what Paul's talking about in this section, we imagine God's law and we use God's law we, we, we imagine it as a, a way that God is making a deal with us, a bargain, a means of living transactionally with him. I keep your law, and you're happy with me. I know when I've not kept your law, you have every right to be upset with me, and you're probably frustrated. Or if I interpret the circumstances of, of my life as you being frustrated, it must mean that I did something wrong. And you're not pleased with me, and I've got to get back into your favor through my own behaviors, through keeping your law better. You've got to try harder. Right? That's the way someone living according to the flesh views their relationship with God. The way of the Spirit, on the other hand, is when the Christian, because of Christ, because of Christ and because of His Spirit, because of God's Spirit, it's when the Christian can call upon God as Father in a beautiful, intimate relationship, not because we've kept up our end, not because I've done that, but entirely in spite of my not having done it, because God reveals himself to be a loving father, because of his grace. This is the way of the spirit versus the flesh. It's the way of the spirit because it's the spirit who assures us of God's fatherly love. That's really what it means to be in the spirit, is to be someone who is assured of God's fatherly love apart from any transaction without our deserving it at all, out of sheer grace. So it says early in Romans, um, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When the Holy Spirit's been given to us and poured into our hearts, that's God's very love given to us, poured into our hearts. So <clears throat> in our passage, starting in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness that we're children of God. He assures us of God's fatherly love to us, that we are God's sons. And there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Um, the Spirit is the one who makes us secure as a, a beloved child feels secure in his father's love. The Spirit is the one who grants us full delight 
in our relationship with God. As a, as a child, a beloved child delights in his relationship with his loving father. The Spirit is the one who enables us to pray. It doesn't just assure us of God's love to us. It actually catches us up in love to God. He enables us to pray to God as our Father. So the Spirit does this because he is, as Paul says, the spirit of adoption. And he's actually the spirit, um, not just of adoption, he's the spirit of sonship. He's the divine spirit of sonship. He's the spirit of God's own son. He's the spirit of the mutual love between the Father and the Son. So the spirit is himself, this third person of the Trinity, is himself the Father's loving self-gift to his Son, and the Spirit is the Son's loving self-gift in return to his Father. Um, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, songs from there seem like uh, every week I could probably use a song from there as an illustration. There's one of the songs that they sing it says, find your own way to say I love you. Find your own way to say I love you. That works for us, you know. Sometimes it's gift giving or you make it, making a cake or just saying something and giving a hug. Find your, way, find your own way to say I love you. Uh, in the eternal Godhead, this is the way to say I love you. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son. And the Son gives the Spirit, returns the Spirit, returns himself through the Spirit. To the Father. The Father says, I love you, to the Son by giving him the Spirit. And the Son says, I love you, to the Father by giving him the Spirit. So, <clears throat> the same Spirit, the same Spirit of Sonship, the same Spirit who makes the eternal Son of God who he is. He is who he is because the Father's given himself to him in the Son, in the Spirit. The same Spirit that makes the eternal Son of God who he is, through whom Jesus was conceived as God's incarnate Son, and through whom Jesus was raised from the dead, as it calls attention to our, in our passage, as God's glorified Son and King of kings and Lord of lords, the same Spirit of sonship is ours because he's the Spirit of our adoption. We're brought into that same relationship. The spirit of adoption as sons is ours. So what is adoption? Some of you know intimately. What is adoption? It's when a child from another family or a child with no family, an orphan, uh, is brought into your family not as a second-class citizen, not in a transactional kind of a probationary testing period. Right? Adoption is when a, a child is brought into your family and given all the blessings uh, that a natural-born child would have. There's only one natural son of God. There's only one, Jesus Christ. There's only one natural son of God, but there are countless adopted sons. And I use that language, sons, don't, don't actually deliberately not saying sons and daughters or even generically, neutrally children, because the Bible uses this language, this language is not meant to be exclusive of daughters. It's not to say, no, no, no women allowed. Um, <clears throat> because it, the Bible makes it clear that in Christ there's ne neither male nor female. You're equally brought in to this relationship with God as your father. The language is not meant to be exclusive of a certain gender. It's actually meant to be inclusive. 
that men and women both are adopted as sons. They're both adopted, they're both given the full rights of inheritance that belong properly to the firstborn son. Ancient world, firstborn son is kind of the big deal. They're the ones that get the lion's share of the inheritance. They're the important one in the family, right? Firstborn son. Um, And this language that we're adopted as sons means that whoever you are, man or woman, you're brought into Jesus Christ as his, he is the firstborn son of God. You're brought into his own relationship with God and given all the rights of inheritance along with him. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. He said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in that passage in John, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to you. And he's saying, I'm going to be coming to you. The Son of God is going to be coming to you in the Holy Spirit of God. That's why uh, I included this this first paragraph here, verses 9 through uh, 11 in our text in Romans 8. Because... um, the Spirit is referred to in so many different ways there. Uh, almost interchangeably, he's the, the Spirit. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of Christ. And it says Christ. So if, if the Spirit of God is in you, if, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, uh, he's in you through his Spirit. And that's why you're not an orphan. That's why you've been brought into God's own family is because Christ himself is in you through his Holy Spirit who's been given to you. It's because of the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us that we can be freed from our transactional view of God. Freed from it entirely. Freed from the slavish fear, our wrong interpretation of our sufferings, our wrong interpretation of our prosperity in this life. And we can know that, in fact, we enjoy the Son's own relationship with the Father. So, verse 16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. And what do we inherit as heirs? Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. It's it's like in Jesus' parable when the the father, the, the two sons, you know, he sees the younger son from afar off, and he casts aside all of his dignity, because in the ancient world, a father would never do anything like this. An older man would be uh, it would be beneath him to go run, but he runs out and he meets his son. He com- comes running, he embraces him, and he puts his robe and he puts his ring on his son. Before the son even gets out his worked up spiel about being a slave now, he lavishes his love upon him. The Holy Spirit is like the robe and the ring. The Holy Spirit is like the robe and the ring, the, the Father's love lavished upon us so that we would know it, so that we would delight, so that we would be secure in his love, our, our knowing that he really is our Father, that he loves us, and that everything that belongs to him belongs to us. You don't deserve that. Nobody does. He gives it to you anyway. Because that's who he is. And Paul says, um, when it's promised to us that God is, uh, has made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, it means that we inherit the Father himself. Not just all his stuff, 
That's cool, you know, it's not just all the worlds that he's made that belong to us. They do belong to us because God is our father, but that's not the big deal. The big deal is that God himself is our inheritance. That we are equally inheritors of God himself with Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the spirit of adoption. The father assures us of his love and our hearts are lifted up to him uh, just as his own son is offered up to his father in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the spirit is like, this, he's like the river current of the divine life, right? He's God's love to you, drawing you along back to God, your love to God. So, um, so Paul says, through the spirit, you can cry, Abba, Father. Through, through the spirit of adoption, through the spirit of sonship, you now, to some degree, act the part of the Son of God himself, who cried out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is Aramaic. Um, you can hear it if you, I mean, if you know what children sound like when they speak. This is not like, you know, a proper English boy all dressed in a suit coming to his father and saying, Father. <laughs> and it really isn't even like toddlers saying, Daddy. It's like the first word out of, you know, an infant. Dada. It's your first word, and you can barely say it right, but, uh, but it comes from that relationship, right? It's a relational, it's an intimate, it's baby blubbering. That's what that is, Abba. Um, Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, uh, there's only three places in, in the New Testament that talk about God as Abba, using that word, that Aramaic word. Romans 8, Galatians 4, I just read. The only other time in the Bible that Abba is used is in Gethsemane. It's in the garden when Jesus was uh, betrayed, he was about to be arrested. He was praying. His soul was sorrowful, even to the point of death, it says. He was in deep anguish. He was crying out to his father, spare me from suffering. Spare me from this suffering. If there's any way for these people to come into a relationship with you and know your love that doesn't involve my being crucified, I'd go for that. Abba, Father, please spare me from this suffering. The Father did not spare his own beloved Son. He didn't spare his perfect Son. He didn't spare the only begotten Son. He didn't spare the righteous Son from suffering. And yet the Son still looked to him as Father and cried out, Abba. And he offered himself to God through the eternal spirit is what it says in Hebrews 9. It's because of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ in the deepest anguish of his soul looked to his father and cried out, Abba. And Jesus was like righteous Job. 
He really was righteous, though, and he never wavered in his sonship. He never wavered in his love and his faithfulness, his obedience to God. He never demanded out of self-justification that God would explain himself. And his father, Jesus' father, allowed Satan to afflict him. Jesus remained faithful, unlike Job. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that the Father made the Son our perfect Savior through that suffering. His Father made Jesus Christ perfect through His suffering. And that our suffering, when we understand that this is how God deals with His Son, this is the love of God, our suffering is evidence only that we're being treated as sons. that it's actually for our good. Hebrews says that we may share the Son's own holiness, that we may share His own relationship with God because of the spirit of adoption, who is ours as we believe in Jesus. We cannot interpret our sufferings as God's short fuse, as God's quick temper, as God's capricious standards, as God's lack of favor, as if he were inclined to hate us, predisposed to hate us. You cannot, because of the spirit of adoption who is in you, you cannot interpret your sufferings as God's having abandoned you or set himself against you. Because of the spirit of sonship who's given to us, our suffering, we're not suffering alone, we're suffering with the Son. Our sufferings are with him not apart from him. And our sufferings are like the sons in that Paul says our sufferings are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. You don't see it now. By faith you know it because of the spirit who's in you. You can know that these sufferings are light and momentary afflictions compared to the, the eternal weight of glory that's being produced as you suffer with the son. When we suffer in faith, knowing that this is how the Father loves us and forms Christ in us, then we actually go through the same process that Jesus Christ himself went through. We go through the process of, of death and resurrection and then glory. That's what it means to suffer with the Son in the spirit of sonship. <clears throat> knowing that God is our Father, he's taking us not just to death, he's taking us through it to resurrection and glory. So um, Thomas Wynandy has a book called The Father's Spirit of Sonship. He says that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sonship, transforms us into the glorious image of God that is Christ, fashioning us into sons of God. And um, maybe it seems unfortunately to us he does that through suffering, but that's how he works with his son. So some quick applications for us. When the spirit of adoption assures you of God's love for you, the first thing you need to know is that it transforms your relationship. It is no longer transactional. You no longer live in slavish fear. That's not the way you relate to God anymore. You're no longer afraid that you have to endear yourself to him or else. You're secure because of the spirit of adoption. 
you're secure, and the secure child has a happy relationship with its father and, and obeys from a sense of rightness in that relationship. It's because the relationship is good that, uh, that the child obeys, rather than obeying in order to make things good. Letting that be your, the driving feature of your life with God. <clears throat> when the spirit of adoption assures you of, a, of God's love for you, it strengthens you to suffer well, like we've talked about. To, to suffer well means to love through your suffering. To love even when it's painful. To love when your love is not reciprocated or rejected. When you really suffer for it, even when you're persecuted. To love through your suffering. Um, again, earlier in Romans 5, it says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we have God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and we know our sufferings are not in vain, and they're not evidence of his uh, abandoning us. Our sufferings are being used by God to shape us into the image of his Son. <clears throat> we need peace, for this, there's lots of uh, situations in which we find ourselves where uh, we're really suffering and we're really tempted to think, my relationship with God must not be right because of what this means. Um, Jesus says, my peace, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be anxious. Do not be afraid. Jesus says, my peace, and what he's saying is, my spirit my spirit I give to you, and it will sustain you through any circumstance, through every suffering. So don't, don't fear, don't be anxious. Um, the spirit of adoption takes away your insecurities about the difficult things in your life. When the spirit of adoption assures you of God's love for you like this, it makes you want to share this love with others. The, the secure child wishes that other fearful slaves would know the security of the Father's love. You're no longer looking for love. You're no longer looking to get love in your relationships. You're looking to give love to others. That's the transformation that takes place <clears throat> with the spirit of adoption. So you stop living transactionally with other people, not just with God, but with other people, in order to convince others of God's fatherly love. Uh, one of the main ways we can do this is with our children, right? Being such a parent to them that they, um, they know what it means to have your approval, to be secure, to delight in their parents' love, even though they're terrible little kids, <laughs> right? Even though they mess it up, even though they disobey, even though they lie to you, even though they hit their brother and the sister, even though they get really angry at you, to know that the word that stands over them is, I love you. That's, that's the word that stands over their home, is I love you. <clears throat> In fact, one of the most beautiful and direct applications possible is doing that with adopted children. Actually going out and adopting <laughs> children. So it's not just your own natural children, but, but adopting someone who, who doesn't have the chance at a home like that to make them to know your love as just a dim reflection 
of the Father's love, but to testify and point to the Father's love with the, um, with the love that you have for your adopted children. Some of you have done that, I know. Um, I'm not advocating we all have to do that. I just think it's a good, beautiful, direct application of a passage like this. Um, this is hard because, you know, we're not perfect parents like our Father who's in heaven. But what could be more wonderful than bringing someone into your own family who does not know love? Who's, apart from you, their life trajectory might, might be one where they never know love. Right? To bring them into your family and lavish every good gift upon them and treat them as your natural children. Give yourself and everything you have to make them secure and happy. That's, that's beautiful. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what God has done for you. You're welcome in his very home, in his very family. Uh, and apart from him, you'd have no chance at love. But with him, it's been given to you freely. You've been declared to be his child through Jesus Christ and by the spirit of his adoption. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it seems too good to be true, and maybe that's why it's hard for us to believe, hard for us to imagine you as a father who, before all things, you've given yourself to us. You've wanted to assure us of your great love for us. You've even sent your son into the world to guarantee it and your spirit into our hearts to bear witness to it. We pray that we would know what it means that we're adopted as sons through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have the full inheritance of Jesus Christ, your own son himself. We have you as our father and a relationship with you that will last forever because of your great love to us. We pray that you would make us secure in that love, that you would take away all our anxieties, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in, no matter the suffering that we face. We pray that you would help us to face all these things knowing that you have loved us and that you will continue to love us even though we don't deserve it. We pray that that, um, that security, that peace, the joy of knowing you as our Father would be transfer, uh, transparent, that it would filter through in all of our relationships, that we would no longer view any relationships in this life um, as transactional, but we would just love and give ourselves to each other. And in doing so, we would imitate our great Father who is in heaven. We pray this for the glory of your kingdom and in your Son's name. Amen.